0: Welcome to Reimagining's Podcast by Belong. In this podcast, we revisit conventional themes and view them through different and unusual lenses. In every episode, we speak to authors and experts who have approached a conventional topic in unique ways and upended normal understandings of topics such as love, history, citizenship, mythology, and many more, urging all of us to question the given and see the world through an intersectional lens. Each episode will cover the journey of these authors and writers, We will break down concepts, introduce new ones and explore the evolution in their thinking. The intent of this podcast series is to provoke people to rethink everyday concepts and realize the importance of multiple narratives and perspectives. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Reimagining Series. Today we are discussing Reimagining Love, Breaking Away from the Normative. We have with us writer and journalist Sharif Ragnecker who advocates for LGBTQI rights at every possible platform. He is the festival director of the Rainbow Lit Fest and his memoir, Straight to Normal, My Life as a Gay Man, is one of the few pieces of writings that explore square lives in India. The next guest is artist and writer Bishak Som. Her comic's work has previously appeared in several international journals and she is the author of two beautiful graphic narratives, Apsara Injun, a collection of eight short stories, and Spellbound, a graphic memoir. Another guest for this episode is American illustrator and comic Mayako Babe. Her first full-length book, Genderqueer, was a winner of an Alex Award and Stonewall Book Award. Their memoir presents a rare glimpse into the reality of life as a non-binary individual and has been translated into several languages. Stay tuned to listen to these three authors who have enabled us to reimagine infinite forms of love, both romantic and platonic. In the first segment, we will hear them explore their relationship with community and found families experience writing memoirs, and the role of love in political, cultural, and social discussions. In the next segment, Sharif shares his experience of living through key moments of the Indian LGBTQI movement and comments on the future of the community. Bishak explores the utopian connotations in her writings and contemplates the radicalness of her collections. Maya shares her motivation to write a memoir and elaborates on the limitations of the Western gender binary. The episode ends on a positive note with all guests recommending books and cinema depicting queer joy. We will begin this episode with questions open to all and then move forward to hear in-depth individual perspectives of the three guests. My first question is, for queer folks, it isn't always necessary that bonds of love are only born out of blood relations or familial connections. Rather, a lot of us are outright rejected by our near ones. In your works, you have explored the kinship and love of found families. Would you like to comment on how you found your community and how did that affect your thinking and writing about love?
1: Hi, thanks for having me. And it's, it's fantastic to be part of this discussion with extremely accomplished authors themselves and creative people. And I guess we all come from different generations. So I'm, I'm 50 plus and believe me, I just find that the younger, Generations doing just so much more in terms of expression, in terms of reaching out, in terms of creating a safe space when it comes to art, expression, and things like that. So, to your specific question, I was very lucky that I had an extremely loving mother and two loving brothers as well. My father had already passed away when I came out. That was 1999. I was 30 years old. So, at that point, my mother was. Innocent, ignorant. In that sense, she made it sort of easy. She was more curious about my sexuality, trying to find out what homosexuality is all about. And her only que- really main question was whether I would get married to a woman or not, or whether I hated women. So I, in a way, actually had my mother's backing because she took this journey of me getting more familiar with, with the queer world, with the gay world, that's what we used to say then. I was lucky that there were other relatives. And, you know, living in a city like New Delhi, there are just people get into each other's lives very easily, whether it's relatives or neighbors. So I think I had relatives who were pretty cool and not terribly bothered. But what to me was extremely important, people who I could share things were, but not really from the family. It was close journalist friends of mine. They're very well known journalists, actually. One of them uh, partners with House of Belong so often, the co founder of The Wire, MK Venu, and his wife Chitra. They are still my go to when I'm in trouble, when I'm bothered, when something's going through my mind, if something didn't work out, or relationships is about to sort of happen, or things like that. I think. They've been a stronger part of my life than really family. So that's how it's been for me. But it's not that I've had relatives who dislike me or have rejected me or hated me. Some of them have asked questions from time to time. But over a period of like 20 years, they're very, very involved in a certain way, just like they would be with you know any nephew or niece had they been heterosexual. So I have an aunt who actually says I'm the son they never had and she has two daughters. She once told me that it could be very lonely, because that's what she's read, that's what she's heard. And that's what's her concern. But after meeting a lot of my friends like Venu and Chitra and a few others, she's least bothered, she's least worried that life can be, you know, lonely, as they say, you know, there's this whole idea of you'll be completed with someone else, there's no idea of being single. So, so I think I've been lucky with family and I've got incredible friends who are more than family.
2: I am one of the lucky queer people who is pretty well accepted by my family. I am in my 30s and I am in fact still living with my parents, which is a good situation for all of us because we get along but I also have many very deep and strong relationships with other queer artists. And I would say usually how we found each other was either because we were both in a school program and we connected over each other's work, or we met at a comic convention, or we read each other's work and resonated with the stories or the experiences in it and reached out. And often those friendships are I think even more powerful than other types of friendships, because we we can just relate about things about identity and sexuality, but also exploring the themes of identity and sexuality in writing and art, and it does lead to like a type of like friend love that almost feels like family love.
3: Well, like Sharif i'm I'm a person of a certain age, I am also fifty plus I don't know how similar our circumstances are, but I came out as trans only fairly recently in terms of as far as the arc of my life is concerned. It only happened really because I had access to to learning language in a way, to learn the language of being trans, of understanding what it meant, that understanding that trans was not what I used to think it was, and I didn't think I had access to it. But it also had to do with, you know, I wouldn't have been able to come out as trans before when my parents were still alive. And it took a certain amount of time to pass before I could realize things about myself, but also have the space to come out without being surveyed or observed by my immediate family, most of whom, well, I mean, my extended family is in India, right? But I have no biological family as such in the States. The question of of coming out was a product of a happy confluence of circumstances. And a lot of it was very. I don't think I would have been able to do that had I been had I realized things about myself earlier on, because I just wouldn't have had the guts to do it. So for what that's worth. But as far as com- the idea of community goes, I'm still like my. I, I found a lot of kinship in the comics world. But you know what? I I've been thinking about this a lot and about how I idealize the idea of community, and how often it it's never as perfect, (laughs) if such a thing is possible, as you might expect or want. So while I have found a lot of kinship with other trans writers, other trans artists and comics creators, I've made a lot of friends through like trans open mics and reading and writing salons. They're just as messed up as any other community. So I guess I don't think one can ever achieve a kind of degree of sync between what, how you imagine you want your community to be and how it actually is. So that's just something you have to embrace. You have to embrace the sort of messiness and multiplicity of it. I sort of project my desire for a certain kind of specificity in community is to write stories about imagined communities. I guess there's several levels of community that I'm trying to channel at
0: once. Isn't that like very similar to family in general as well? Like all, our families are also pretty dysfunctional in their own ways. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's like,
3: yeah, you're never going to find, I mean, I guess it would be too, it would be like <laughs> science fiction to find something that was so perfect. Why? Because it was too scary.
0: All of you have written about your life, be it Maya's Genderqueer, Bishak's Spellbound, and Sharif's Straight to Novel. What individually do you towards memoir writing and what would be your response to people who deem discussion around one's gender identity or sexuality a topic to be discussed in private.
2: Yeah, I would say to people who think the topic is private, they don't have to write a memoir nor do they have to read one. You can easily just not participate in those conversations if you don't want to. And also I would say that I too consider myself a fairly private person despite having written a revealing memoir, but I think maybe my fellow panelists will agree with this. There is still quite a lack of published information about how to be a trans or queer or non-binary adult. And that lack of information is so detrimental to young people or even people who aren't that young, who just are still finding things out about themselves. And I definitely know that I published a book about trying to figure out what it meant to be non-binary to me because I couldn't find hardly any books on that topic. And when I was younger, I was constantly looking to people who were even just a little bit older than me, like five years older than me being like, what is your non-binary adult life like? And could mine be like that? And really searching so hard for this that didn't seem to exist. And I also knew that I could publish about this information fairly safely because I have an accepting family, because I live in a really liberal area of the country. I knew that coming out and writing about topics of sexuality and identity and love and all of these things wouldn't threaten my job or my health insurance or my housing situation or any of that. I knew I could do it with a lot of personal safety. And I felt like if I can provide this information that will be useful to someone else without threatening my own life, I, I want to do that, to offer that for other people.
1: I'll answer the second part of the question first, that I think given the current circumstances or how things have been in India for a very long time, I think amongst the younger generation out there, there are a lot of private closed-door conversations taking, places, taking place and which I think is fantastic because not everyone can afford books. I mean, there's just so many people who are students, so many people who don't have jobs and, you know, COVID has done what it has. So I think those who want to have conversations in private, they're important to them. Not everyone can come out and really speak. And, and I think what we're doing, I mean, in terms of a podcast, for example, Technology in any way has changed just so many things for, you know, whether you want to have a closed group, whether you want to have an open group, all of those things are there. There are audio books available. There's just so much of this. I think it's up to a person's choice where they are in their journey, where they want to be and what they want to share. So I agree with what I was saying. You know, if someone wants to do it, they'll do it, and they don't, it's, it's really fine. I don't think there is something sacred about doing something or not doing it. You know? I mean, I think that's the great thing about our community, I mean, the whole rainbow. So, but I think when I, when I started out on this, I actually made an attempt to write a book in 2013. And at that time, there was a lot of excitement. But then the Supreme Court out here recriminalized homosexuality in December. And then the, the questions that were coming up was, will my mom, in particular, be able to deal with content going out of that sort? So I made an attempt to write fiction, and I just couldn't. I just couldn't fictionalize my life. I think that's something someone else, I feel, could do. Because I'd been a reporter earlier, and then I was in the communication field. So it was always real-life something that you report, real-life issues. So that's just not me. It was finally only in 2019 that in the same room that my mother came, and I, I, I quit my job. and So she just came to the room. She said, what happened to your book? So I said, oh, I said, I've been thinking of it, but you know, so she says, I think you better write it because I think we need it. I don't know where exactly, she has still not answered that question as to where she was coming from. Why did she want me to write the book? She just believed that I'm sitting in a, in a position of privilege. I don't need to have a nine to five job. You know, I could manage with occasional work. I had a home with full support. So she says, it's my duty and responsibility mm-hmm. now to definitely write that and put that out because it might help parents, it might help children, it might help whoever else. So that's where it it really was, where this came from, which really freed me because I wrote like a reporter on 27 Days was the first draft. you know, which Oh is my gosh. Book. Yeah, I know, I don't know how I did that. I can't do it again. I'm working on another book right now. I just can't do it. I just wrote and I never went back to the book, except for some editing or some changes or some additions that came to my mind later. It has material out there that I didn't even think of. So that, you know, I just wrote it. And I think it was perhaps so honest that I didn't know I could be that honest. It was something like that. So, and I think I still see literature and, and discussions and everything being important. But as uh, Maya said, that you know, it's, it's really a choice. But In our situation where we are, as she was saying, you know, reference points, what you turn to, where do you go? I think that's where books really come in. That's where scholarly work also comes in so that people can turn to that to find something, you know, find some meanings. And if it comes from the community, it's even better than sometimes what you find on a search engine, which may be written by God knows who, and you might get the wrong impression of what something is. And then you have a, and then you face a backlash in the community.
3: I guess regarding the second half of the question, I have a feeling that there's a sort of cultural and specificity to that question because my Sharif was saying, regarding things like 377, right? And the recriminalization and, of queerness. I feel like there's a difference between that cultural and political milieu and let's say what Maya and I experience in the States, not to generalize no,
2: over. No, but,
3: it is um, very different. It's, yeah, <laughs> a huge difference. So, For example, certainly there's a huge population in the in the states who are reactionary, right wing, kind of very close-minded people who would not appreciate the kind of work that we do, right? You might have a different experience with this, but I feel like our work is not even on their radar. Like, Like they they wouldn't even know to engage with it because unless I mean, I feel like you know, my books came out last year and they are not exactly like New York Times bestsellers. So they're not on everyone's radar, right? And I feel like were they to be a little more high profile, then maybe I would start to get a lot more hate mail or something. But as it is, I think I'm almost preaching to the choir, right? And, And if I did have to engage with someone who was trying to shut down narratives about being queer or trans or just about being a sexual to put out there what your gender identity is, what your gender is, I would say then you have to shut down like eighty percent of all literature because like what do you do with James Baldwin or what do you do with Nin or Shakespeare? You have to just cut out everything that that is like makes up the kind of bulk of what you consider literature, and so. But that's not even a discussion that's worth having because you're engaging with very. I don't know how to put it in a nice way, but it's not even worth taking the time to have that discussion in the first place. As for the first half of the question, I wasn't drawn to memoir at all. (laughs) In fact, I resisted it for a long time and I really didn't want to write about myself. And it was only because I had finished my first book, Upsara Engine, and I'd sent it off to publishers. While I was waiting for responses from publishers, I just didn't know what to do with myself. So I just wanted to like keep drawing and just as an exercise, I sort of started indulging in the, di- in, the, in the mode of the diary comic, right? And that's what eventually turned into Spellbound, but I never thought it would become a book. Maybe it's the opposite of what Sharif was saying, because if I tend to talk about my experiences, I would prefer to fictionalize them and to have somebody else in my stead. My spokesperson or ambassador, let's say, you know, I like to out- filter whatever experience and ideas I have through a character rather than to focus on myself.
2: It's interesting hearing what you both said. I related to Sharif where I actually did also try to write a more fictionalized version of my life of a non-binary character who was kind of based on me, but not me. And it didn't feel emotionally true. And I felt like that attempt sort of was a failure. And then I realized, oh, I think I have to write about my own honest experience before fictionalize this. And I would like to, now that I have a memoir out, write more books where it is more my own feelings, but seen through a fictional character. But I felt like I had to write a memoir first to say everything I had to say in a memoir. And then now I hope my next book can be a fictional book, with a but with a non-binary character. So mm-hmm. the creative process is so interesting. I don't know. It's It can take so many twists and turns.
0: We are always happy to get all these books as a young person here. <laughs> So, yeah, because, of course, like, as you all mentioned, there are no records or, or of queer lives at all. So it's always good to have these, to have your memoirs to look out for. Why is love still such a topic of powerful political discussion or force of literary imagination? Why are we still fighting in courts, private spheres and public forums for our right to form connections with who we choose to call our own? Why is love beyond the singular romantic and binary boy-meets-girl depiction considered radical?
1: I mean, this question is like, you know, today, on my family group, I'm not, I've been a little inactive with WhatsApp, more for phone calls than anything else, while trying to write my book. But today's something called World Daughter's Day. And I read it, and it is so heterosexual. The imagination, of the daughter marrying a husband, and the father asking the daughter, does, she, does the daughter love him more or the husband? So, you know, now that question itself is okay, fine. That could be happening between parents or whatever. But I think it's a ridiculous question to ask. But just the idea that, that the girl is going to marry a boy, itself tells you what kind of world we live in. It's, it's what you were saying. So just a little while ago, hardly an hour and hour and a half ago, and I was like, I didn't respond or react to it. And I said, I'm not getting into a discussion of it. But where we are, and I, I don't think that's just, it's, it's entirely unique to to India or the South Asian region, right? Because this, this happens elsewhere. It took forever for a brokeback mountain to be made in the U.S. after 200 plus years of independence, right? we have 75 years of independence and. We do have very, a far larger number of them out there, and there are just uh, quite a few books now in the last two years. When it comes to India, I think the politics is not just about law. Right? It's the politics of caste. It's the politics of class. It's the politics of patriarchy, And in the current environment where we have a right-wing government, where a court is told us recently as 2015 that marital rape doesn't exist, everything within marriage is sacred or sacrament, then you can imagine where we're coming from. So everything is political in that sense because amongst the first, the first actually matrimonial ad put out by a mother of a gay man was about finding a, a partner of the same caste. So the idea of love itself Is sort of put into these boxes forget the queerness here first right because sometimes i'm asked the same question what's my someone i fell in love with what's he doing what's his background What does he speak it's all those same things and to me it's it's so difficult to run away from that in the system so when we fight when we fight and when Activists speak in in the Indian context, they do talk about caste. They do talk about hegemony. They do talk about anti discrimination, which then includes many more people of all kinds of minorities. It's not limited to boy girl alone. It's not just that. Okay, that's, I think, a problem across many parts of the world. But I think when we're looking at politics and that whole thing, it starts with that, right? Like, I'm born into a caste. I'm also born into a religion. And when you have conflict of religion, you're dealing with so many other intersections as well. And those intersections are political. You need leaders, you need voices, you need debates in parliament, which don't happen. You need to push the press. The press is high caste in any case, largely. For so many years, they've done nothing. It's only the last three, four years or something that they're raising issues related to women and the way they do relate to queerness, related to class and caste issues that it's taken so long for us so when we deal with love it's all these layers you know and it's not just the gender binary or the gender roles such. that is very much there that's so deeply entrenched because in hindu large section of hindus believe marriage is dharam dhamma it's part of your duty so marriage is celebrated it's a huge occasion but it is pretty much Amongst the things, if you had a bucket list when you're just born, you know, that would be part of your bucket list. I have to do. And because of the kind of politics, even religion is political. So let me put it that way, that that's how it is out here. But it could be as the shark was saying earlier, that there are cultural nuances, there are different laws, you know, there's law, all of those things. So that's where it is as far as the Indian context, right? I, I think goes.
3: Again, it goes back to the milieus that we're each operating in don't know how radical the work I do is you know it's like to me it's not radical but I'm, I'm kind of like I don't know I'm straining to understand how that work how I can consider the work being its author to be radical because I don't set out to write something that will incite riots it's just you know a channeling of imagination rather than a manifesto or anything. So I don't know, like, how to consider my work in that, in that context. But as I was saying, the the work, the books that I've put out are being read by people who I think will already not be, will all be inclined to not reject this kind of work. So the radical effect is, is not that pointed. To them, it's like, it's, again, it's like, you're telling, I'm at least, I mean, there might be points in my book, which are Surprising, or they're sort of imagining ways of life that maybe don't exist, but I think for the most part, the audience that's reading them will be open to these ideas, so the radical edge is kind of blunted if there is one. but having said that, considering it in a global landscape, like why are we still fighting or fighting to write these narratives I, I don't know i mean it's that's a huge question because I guess even in this 20 20- <laughs> The 21st century, which at some point will seem like a very archaic era, we still have people like Trump and Bolsonaro and Lukashenko and just repressive regimes. And I think it's in our nature as as a species just to do this over and over again and for a minority or, you know, for a certain part of the population to have a little more righteousness to, you know, about their and to protest, and to say what you're doing is wrong, but it seems to me the scum always rises to the top, and ever will it, you know, it's always going to be that way, until there's some kind of radical reimagining of the way we can live on a planet together, like all, you know, seven plus eight billion people together, it's, I, I don't know how, this question of why it's considered radical to write stories, which are just narratives about our own experience, why that's still considered to be an anomaly or in terms of a global context is just going to be a question you're going to have to keep asking until we either, I don't know, until something happens so that we're not as awful as we are.
2: That made me think of two things, one of which is I think that politics is still mixed in with questions about love because we tie specific legal rights to things like marriage, which is both a celebration of love, but also just like a legal, a change of legal status, right? That we tie things like tax breaks and insurance and hospital visits and inheritance to marriage, which often has only been allowed for a very type of relationship between two straight cisgender people. And I think the fact that it's like that marriage is this tangle of both feelings and legal rights brings love into a political sphere in a way that's honestly very messy. And I don't know how to resolve it aside from hoping that people nations are expanded, that people are able to even just visualize other types of love and other types of relationships. I do think that there is the pushback against queer people and queer love. I think a lot of it comes from like ignorance and or just a complete lack of imagination, lack of empathy, a lack of being able to look into another person's life and either understand where they're coming from or else just accept that you may never understand where they're coming from, but you can still respect them as a person and respect that they have rights to live however makes them most happy as long as it's not impinging on the rights of another person. And that is where I do think that literature can be very strong, can be very powerful, is to hopefully expand the imagination of readers and expand what readers can visualize as love, as a way to live, as an identity, whether or not they end up relating to it particularly. But at least if people can see like, oh, this is a way to live and it is not better or worse than any other way to live. It's just another way. And I definitely think you're saying you didn't think your work is revolutionary but I showed one of your books to a friend of mine who is younger and was born in India and then moved to the US later and they are non-binary and they looked at it and were like oh my gosh I had never seen people like wearing saris on spaceships and that concept to them was amazing and they also were like I thought that if this work was going to exist I was going to have to make it but look somebody else made it already and it was a really big moment for them.
3: That's really nice. Yeah. A lot of the, the work that I do comes from that very kind of, uh, never having seen it, that kind that imagery myself of like just two South Asian women in a comic having a conversation, you know, that was the impetus for one, one of the stories and for, well, for many of the stories just to have some kind of representation, but, and I, I love that, that your, your friend was moved by that kind of imagery. But it, yeah, I was, I'm still working through whether that's radical or not, but I'm glad it was useful or inspirational to, to them.
2: I think it's really hard as the author of a work to know whether your work is radical, because yeah, I think yeah. the radicalness is in the reception of the reader. Yes, exactly.
1: So I think in the, again, I'll, I'll bring it to the South Asian context of things also. We have a list of around 220 odd books by South Asian authors, not all published in India. And that's from 1976 or 77, if I remember correctly. And that's just a really, really small number for a country like ours. It's a small number. I mean, what? One publishing house publishes around 300 plus books every year. So if we have just 200 plus since 1976 in English, it's quite small. The good thing is that we do have work which was done in Hindi in Manipuri and different other, you know, various languages, but that hasn't been translated and people are trying to locate it from the 1920s, 1930s, etc. But the, the importance of these stories, what I what I realized while organizing also the Lit Fest is it sort of gives reference points. I don't think it's as Maya said, it, it's really the reader who thinks something is radical or not, because it, it relates or to their life, it maybe relates to their aspiration, maybe it's something they never heard or seen, so then they would use revolutionary, radical, you know, all of these words, because when my book came out, I didn't think it was brave, I mean, I wasn't even thinking when I wrote the book, but the word used was brave, courageous, you know, all kinds of things, but but, you know, if I compare my life with a number of people who've seen farter for life, and a person who's non-binary, their life in a, in a city like Delhi, let's say, or Bombay or any other part of the country is hugely different. So how do you look at you know, radical or brave? It's, it always has a space and a context to you know, where you are and what they know. But I, I would say that what some authors and filmmakers have said from time to time is we need stories and we need to crowd the place out with, with content. We need to get people to levitate to the character, to an emotion. We need to do, you know, all of those things is what writers can do, whether it's poetry, whether it is prose, or whether it is even a script for a film, for theater, whatever. I think that itself can is sort of a movement in its own way. And that what you know will perhaps get more and more people to relate to our lives. And I'm talking about an external world, but also for people from our community who are desperately looking for something that appears real, that they could perhaps reach out to the writer, perhaps they could imagine that or maybe see themselves in it. You know, so that's where it comes. But radical or not, um, yeah, I don't know. It's radical when a court says, I'm sorry, right? Which, which which one of the judges said, you know, history owes us an apology.
0: Now I'm moving to like the individual questions. So I think the first question will be to Sharif only because you <laughs> brought out the court judgment. So I'll, I'll bring that question up. When section 377 of the Indian Penal Code was struck down, many celebrated the choice with the phrase, love is love. Many queer activists today reject this phrase and argue that queer identity is more than the choice of your partner. What do you think of this stance and how has your own understanding of queer love changed over the years?
1: I was not here in India when the when the leading down of Section 377 happened, but it was two days before my birthday. So my whole family said that it was an early birthday gift. Um, I had got used to living with 377, so I, it was more of a sigh of relief. But it was really, it was on the next day. And when I think of it, my it was on the next day that I broke down in my hotel room and I just kept crying, kept crying down. And I was watching all these videos, which were coming in, et cetera. And then suddenly I see this flurry of things happening from also sections of the queer community, as well as the press. One of the headlines was love at first flight, which was an unemotional border, except for that apology. Okay. It had nothing to do with love. We were just, they just decriminalized what they call carnal sex against the law of nature. That's all. So this culture approach, mainstreaming, because we are not even able to say in the press, in the headline, now people can have sex and they won't be, you know, that they have to use the word love. I mean, it's that tunnel vision. It's that same heterosexual sort of thing. And there are people within our community who, who like that. And usually they're high class, high caste, privileged people who can actually find love, most likely. Or they least find Multiple partners and all. I think which is just fantastic. We can find so many partners at one time, that's great. But to me, love is love is problematic, not necessarily only from this political point. I think it is like all lives matters, vis-a-vis Black lives matters, specific, queer love matters, queer love is love. To me it would have been much better because then we interpret what that is. Then it we own it. But when someone puts a love is love, which usually comes from a certain class or caste, and it comes from the mainstream heterosexual world, they are already trying to own it. Then you can't fit in your narrative, right? Because you're already against a hugely powerful power structure. So I think in that, I don't know how activists saw it you know, and all, but to me, this is what I felt and I was angry because when you have a judge saying, history owes us an apology, you're ignoring all the history. And you're quoting that, that line time and again. And you're saying, it's wow, it's fantastic. It's great that the judge said that. But then what is that history that she was referring to that you're completely ignoring with a lover's love? And in our situation where in any case, 90% according to data, approximately 90% of people get an arranged marriage, we need to claim what we interpret as love because otherwise we get caught in the same... Thing and we are still fighting so many other things out there which are fixed in their minds, cemented over the years. So to me, that was my reaction to the lover's love thing. And, and, and it really upset me. I was feeling helpless and and I think it was in a on our TV debate on that on the same night that I I sort of talked about not exactly that because the hashtag was still about to trend. It hadn't yet started trending. It was, you know, a couple of days later you saw hashtag love is love, hashtag pure love. Pure love is like Ganga water is uh, pure water, you know, but we don't have any dead bodies flow through it. So I think that was what I felt about it at that point. But as far as I think queer love, a lot has changed from my time because when I grew up, we didn't use heterosexual or homosexual as well because we didn't, we didn't think there was anything else. You know, I mean, we didn't even have to define, it was just boy, girl and things happen and they get married and whatever. So even to search for the word homosexual took forever. I mean, I come from a time when, and the shark might know is that we had search engines like excite.com. It should have been something pornographic, but it was a search engine, a regular one. And uh, nothing unique. And then we we had the word gay, which which I sort of started understanding, the umbrella word. And there were mostly men out. We didn't understand transsexual itself. We didn't know. We just used to say that there are some men who like to cross dress, and we didn't understand drag either from an Indian context or from a RuPaul context. You know, and we've had enough and more drag if you look at historically. So everything was, you know, male-dominated, as in the cisgender gay man. The problem that you have in society at large, I, I represent part of the problem in the community. So love, I mean, you know, the change that you're, you've, you've asked in this has we love changed over the years. And it's changed dramatically. And it has a lot to do with social media. It has a lot to do with millennials. And I think in recent times during COVID, The OTT platforms that have been showing us just, you know, non-binary folks, you're getting to understand pronouns. We're learning them, the new ones we we are seeing. I think last year I read a report that there are 20 types of sexuality. So it was in 2019, I think. I went on a, a date, I think it was a date, with them. And I thought, he's he. And he starts the conversation Sharif, you must know, I'm pansexual. And, I, I, and he took a phone call right after that. I could go on the Google and find out what it meant. I was so ignorant, even 2019. Because there's just so many now. There's such a broad spectrum out there. So the I think with that, the idea of love has also changed. I think I'm meeting and I'm understanding more and more, and that's taken me a long time to even separate sex from love. And a lot of my learning has come from places like Bangkok more than really from the West, because there, everything is fluid. You know, if you go to Thailand, there was a huge androgynous sort of uh, community till the 1950s, it was 1956, where they did away with, you know, the adultery law and all of those things. So this imbibing these things, I think love has changed dramatically. The idea of love has changed dramatically. The idea of what you like and what you don't, the idea of who you are and what you relate to, I think all of those are emotions. So and, and I think that's where the change has come. That today, I mean, I have a partner, but I keep telling my partner that I have no problem. COVID and all, you're on the move. And I have to be careful because my, I live with my mom. She's 80. You know, if you need to have sex, just please go ahead. And I'm pleased to bothered about it because I love him dearly, you know, for who he is, not for his other attributes. Yeah. So I think that's what's changed here.
0: The next question is for Bishak. In your mesmerizing graphic short story collection, Apsara Engine, you have illustrated an alternate queer and South Asian universe. Can you elaborate on what one means by queer spatiality? And if choosing to create a geography populated by femme trans brown bodies would be a reimagining of a utopia?
3: Well, I guess the specific story in Apsara Engine is one dive. I think that sets out that vision most explicitly. And The initial impulse behind that story was there's several layers. I think one is it's an homage to drawing as a way of opening up the imagination. So, you know, as artists, the one constant I've had in my life is that I've been drawing. And that for me has been a sort of tool of of release and expression and liberation. And I wanted to write a story even obliquely about, about how drawing and writing can be a very powerful method of opening up your mind and opening up a world or multiple worlds. And it, I guess it specifically has to do with maps and cartography and how one of the characters says that they're, she's not interested in how maps describe existing situations, but rather how they can be a tool in generating other worlds or other ways of thinking or other other ways of being, right? And I think this goes back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier about this idea of community, right? And how I said that, you know, I was finding that the real life communities that I've found myself in have been far messier than I had imagined them to be. And I I guess I had some kind of utopian vision of what, like, let's say it, you know, what it would be like to go to a trans lady's picnic, right? And then turns out it's not as like perfect as, as I mean, that, I'm, not, I'm not, you know, no shade, but everyone knows this, you know, we're, we're like, it, it, <laughs> it's a kind of a, a hot mess. But so the idea of, of behind writing that story was to, to say, here's what I think, you know, how I imagine a utopian vision of, of queer trans feminists can be like, right? And it's slightly ridiculous because it's just my own perfect world where the club or bar on the corner plays exactly the kind of music I like. Mm -hmm. Or this kind of thing, you know, it's it's almost ludicrous, but at least it's out there as a possibility, you know, it's out there as one possibility out out of many. And everyone, every queer or trans person has their own idea of what that can look like. And I think it's just—it's not a template for anything. It's just a way of saying these worlds can exist if you want them to be out there. It's also an homage to way queer people create their own communities. And so I was thinking specifically of things like ballroom culture, right? Like how, like that whole community is is created. I mean, I, actually, I would like to learn more, but I, it almost seems like it's a community that that was created by queers for queers, and it was almost like a radical reinvention or Creation, not even a recreation, but a creation of something that didn't exist and was just sort of like improvised and put together as a space for queers to thrive in, you know? And that was something that was, to me, seemed very radical. You know, that's a radical political kind of maneuver. And I've been exploring that idea a little bit of how queer and trans folks are really good at sort of bricolage of like, you know, collecting disparate elements, and creating their own worlds and their own own communities, even if they're not perfect, which is something I explored in a story I did recently for Eflux Journal called The Tourist, about how these communities are, on the one hand, amazing because they're these organic agglomerations of people who have an affinity with each other. They're these communities of kinship that are created in the midst of and against a sort of prevailing sense of patriarchy and cisgender kind of normativity but on the other hand they're not perfect either and that that's the story I think that's the sort of story that I'm moving towards now is is away from this idea of like a utopia towards what utopia actually in practice turns out to be if what utopian thinking can lead to yeah I don't know I don't want to I'm trying to steer away from critique of this kind of thinking and more into, this is why I like genres like science fiction, because they allow you to have a a sort of oblique critique of, of ideas like utopia, but to do it in a sort of, not to face the problem head on as you might do with like an opinion editorial, but rather to tell a story woven around the idea of a critique of utopia. So that's what I'm aiming at. And I think, Maybe I'm trying to become a little more realistic. Since writing Swan Dive, I think I'm veering more towards an acceptance of how how messy the world can be.
0: Maya, the next question is for you. Non-binary is relatively a new term, even in queer circles. Your memoir then has pushed you in the role of a spokesperson of sorts for the community. How have you responded to this responsibility? And what challenges do you face frequently when you discuss gender queerness with people?
2: Well, I definitely want to say first that I think the term non-binary and the concept of a gender outside of male and female is particularly new in the West and in English. And as many trans and non-binary people of color and people from other communities outside the U.S. or indigenous communities have pointed out, like many cultures had other genders aside from male and female before contact and imperialism by the West. So when we talk about whether a trans or non-binary identities are new or recent to the conversation, I think it's, again, as we keep pointing out, it's important to, to say, you know, what cultural and language sort of tradition you're coming from. So I would say the concept of non-binary, it is new to me. It's something that I only started to learn about when I was in grad school, but it's not new to the world. And it's especially not new to non-white communities and cultures. As I briefly mentioned earlier, I knew when I was writing this book that I, yes, that I was going to be stepping into somewhat of an educator role, that I was kind of setting myself up as an expert, I say with huge air quotes. And part of why I chose to do that was very intentional. I I knew I knew that, that would probably happen if I published this book. And I did it partly because I felt safe enough to do so, that I was coming from a, a place, like I mentioned earlier, of privilege of safety, whereas like I can be open about these things and it won't threaten, yeah, literally the like safety or health or financial safety or family relationships of my life. I also think that like nobody of any minority identity is required to educate other people about their identities. No one is required to do that. But you can volunteer if you want to, and if you think you have the emotional capacity to do so. Because it's I do think it's true that nobody nobody is born knowing anything. And, you know, people only learn things through education and reading and conversations and listening to podcasts. And I do think that if somebody feels like I have the capacity to be a teacher around, you know, whatever my minority identity is, I do think it's a, it's important work to do and it's very worthy work to do. And then I also understand very much if people become tired of it or tired and need to step back from that sort of education work because they're like, I just need to rest for a while and not answer any questions. And just live. But I think so far, I mean, my book's only been out for two years. So far, I am still feel like, yes, I can be an educator around this. I am happy to keep talking to people and speaking to college classes and talking at libraries and answering emails from young people and talking on podcasts because I still have the energy for it. So I'm really glad that it's also it has even, it's opened some doors for me too to have conversations with people I might not have spoken with before. Like, I don't know that I would have been in a conversation with these other two authors if I hadn't written a book about this topic. So it's not all just a burden. There's parts of it that are a real gift and that I'm really grateful for.
0: That was a really good point to point out that culturally, of course, the idea of the binary is very Western-centric. <laughs> um, the next question is for Sharif. Straight to normal, my life as a gay man is not a memoir alone but also captures the upheavals of the Indian LGBTQIA movement in the past decade. What do you see as challenges to queer lives in India today? And how do you envision the future of this movement?
1: Well, yeah, I think through my book, I did cover a fair bit of the movement from a Delhi perspective. Little elements thrown in from Kolkata mumbai but it was more delhi centric because that's where all the coming out started happening not when i was born in bombay or when i lived in kapata and here yeah, i think i'm not the best person to really answer you know what the future would be like i think in 2018 or, or even 2014 when we had the nalsa judgment which gave a lot of rights and recognition to the trans community it was a huge supreme court order which didn't get the same publicity as let's say, Section 377 did. The journey of change, I think, was already happening. The wheels were already rolling, so to say, but the problem I think lies with the question you'd asked earlier. The problem lies with a lover's love sort of expression of thing. I think moving forward, given how diverse this country is, and I don't want to use it in a very cliche, I'm talking about, again, caste, I'm talking about color, I'm talking about region, I'm talking about language. Uh, as Maya just said, that, you know, there are a non-binary as an idea, as, as a word, as a term, as a living being exists in many cultures across Asia, for sure, that I know. And even in India, I mean, we have in myology itself, you know, you have in the Mahabharata, you have some sections of the Vedas who talk about the soul and the, the body uh, being immaterial. And, you know, so there's just so many things out there already. So in a country like ours, the queer movement really depends entirely on whether we can deal with an idea of equality to start with and equity within our community. You know, whose voice is getting heard? Who's holding the mic? Do we know what is happening in Kerala at the tip of India at Kanyakumari, at Cape Comoran? Do we know what the Kashmiri feels, given that Kashmir is going through a lot of political turmoil now? And that includes our community as well. What's it like in Manipur or Nagaland in, in the northeastern parts where you have insurgencies? So there are many layers to what is that representation? One thing we face is there are a lot of trans women. The trans men are upset. Why aren't they out there and, you know, being talked to, spoken to? What is their representation like? We have Dalit queer people, we have Dalit women, we have Adivasis. I mean, there's just so much out there that I think if we talk about a queer lens, vis-à-vis a heterosexual lens within the queer community, do we have enough of the same sort of demand and bandwidth and ability to accept that there are many more voices than the ones sitting in urban parts of India speaking English? and coming from high class and caste. I think the movement depends on representation from the community. That, that's how I see it. At this point in time, I find given that our focus is entirely only on marriage and our idea of equality is to get what others have, the heterosexuals, then we have a big problem. And we're not you know, focusing necessarily on civil rights. We're not focusing on the fact that so many people are dying of suicide even after 377 was read down. We're not talking about the fact that many many people from our community are still forced into marriage it was only a month plus ago that the chennai high court said conversion therapy should be banned but what's happening what's the follow up to that is it happening from the medical fraternity is it going to happen our licenses being revoked is the government acting it on uh, or the legislature we aren't discussing it the same way we discuss marriage right i mean even the press talks about same sex marriage they don't do a hashtag something when an IIT graduate from a bright kid in January of 2020 died of suicide, or a 16-year-old boy in Chennai died of suicide again because he was bullied. A lesbian girl took her life because she was harassed by her parents. Another lesbian woman who was tied to a tree in the state of Madhya Pradesh, okay, and beaten up by villagers. So we aren't we are not addressing real issues, we're addressing issues of privilege. And at this point in time, so I think if that is going to be the way we, we move forward, we have a, a number of hurdles coming up, there will be only few beneficiaries of change, and not across, across the spectrum, as far as the community goes. So I think that's what disturbs me, that is what bothers me, because I've seen a certain kind of life, and having been a reporter, and I still have that Reporting mindset that I feel we aren't addressing what we need to. We are two tunnel vision right now. But I'm still optimistic because India keeps surprising everyone, right? I just want to add the fact that the Chennai High Court took that order and not somewhere from the north in the dominant Delhi and whatever. I think that's that's fantastic. But again, I would just say that my optimism is not that fantastic. I, I don't think we. Do service to ourselves and our community if we don't look at representation from within.
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, for sure. In India, the urban-centered majority, and there's a lot of like problems in the intersections in the queer community itself, for sure. That's why I think even I slipped up and I forgot about like the influence of the West for the binary because even my education and everything has been from the West perspective.
1: I'll just for say for visit sure, yeah. Thailand, it's so liberating.
0: Yeah, so the next question is for Vishak. In the South Asian context, Apsaras are fetishized and similar to sirens, signify the dangerous allure of destructive love. What was your inspiration behind choosing this title and this imagery of Apsaras for this spatial reimagination?
3: Maybe I didn't. In thinking about the collection as a collection, I, I think a lot of what I realized about my motives in writing a lot of those stories only have what well, my realizations only came into focus after the book was out. So the, some of this is very like retrospective kind of cogitation on why I wrote what I did. So that's, I mean, it's interesting. What I knew about Apsaras just from my very rudimentary reading in Hindu mythology is I didn't pick up so much on the sort of dangerous allure of them of being sirens so much as I thought of them as mischievous. I think that's the energy I was trying to channel, even though I, I understand that there is that kind of quality where you can think of them somewhat like sirens. What I was trying to channel is more this idea. And again, this is a reading that I think came from one of my friends rather than me, but I think is valid is that you know a lot of the stories involve one character or two characters in the process of interruption and disturbance and they all some you know they might pop up at an opportune moment to create a kind of rupture in the narrative right and as that's what i was thinking that these characters who are these disruptors are a manifestation of this apsara and energy right and i think where that comes from is this idea that they i don't know like i think there's several instances in hindu mythology where Apsaras come and interrupt, like, say, for example, like if a rishi is doing a Buddha, like a yagna or yajna, right, they're doing like a fire sacrifice or something, the apsaras will come and distract the rishi from this ritual and the, the symbol of the sort of patriarchal energy becomes so fixated on, on the apsara that they mess up their own yajna, right? And I love that spirit of mischief and play. And I think that's what a lot of the characters in the book were were doing. I have to say, you know, a lot of the book was written before, like, you know, I was saying, I, I came out fairly recently before I had any kind of access to the breadth of trans language and the breadth of what trans could mean. So while I was writing a lot of these stories, I didn't know who I was, you know. I didn't even know if I was queer because I didn't know if I would be accepted as queer in the sense that my specific queernesses were not even nameable to me by myself. So I think a lot of the stories in which these characters, upsaras come as forces of interruption are they're you know, interrupting normative narratives, right? So there's stories about two characters who are leading similar seemingly kind of conventional lives who and where that narrative becomes interrupted by this third character and I think that for me was a sort of symptom of where I was at as a psychic being like I felt like I needed something to interrupt my life and so I was willing these characters into being to try and make that happen. And i you think- trying
2: to lure in one of these spirits by writing about them? <laughs>
3: In retrospect, that's, I think that's what I was trying to do. But I, again, I didn't know what I was doing, you know, until a certain point at which I wrote Swan Dive, in which I think that Apsara energy becomes less a reaction to a normative condition, and then becomes more generative, it becomes something Mm -hmm. in itself rather than a reaction to something else. But I don't want to take away, dismiss any of those narratives that I wrote when I didn't know who I was, because I think they were formative to who I later became, I think whatever upsar energy I might channel in the future, again, will not be in the service of disrupting other people's narratives, because those narratives to me aren't interesting anymore. So I just want to reel it in and focus on what it means for our communities to live our own lives and, and not have it be in relationship to other communities to I don't want to go back into this idea of like fighting against something or interrupting mm-hmm. something because I think well that book is done so I want to I want to <laughs> seeing like what 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 we as queer and trans people can create on our own.
2: I read a really good quote by another trans writer recently that I just can't stop thinking about, which is that we mm-hmm. often, many trans people find out they are trans by the process of writing about being trans, and if yeah. you can't maybe reach that realization until you are writing about it. And it's like Mm -hmm. you birth the identity through the creative Mm -hmm. process.
3: Which is kind of incredible. That can be a process that actually works and happens. I mean, I wouldn't have thought it, you know, but it's pretty magical. Well, I mean, again, that word is, that's been used to describe my work and I'm I'm shying away from it because (laughs) the trope of the magical trans person, right? Mm. With magical powers and stuff. And I want to not feed that trope any more than I have to but there is something that I appreciate because I you know some of the stories do operate in that mode of people have called it speculative fiction and there's an element of of imagination which can maybe translate into magic and I I don't mind so much when that word is used in the context of my work I think it's being somewhat overused and I, and I don't want to like There's a multiplicity of ways that we can describe the infinite number of trans narratives that are out there. And this element of magic maybe just is one tiny, tiny little bit
0: of it. Umaya, love is, of course, not only limited to others, even the exercise of trying to understand yourself better is an expression of love. You have captured this journey so beautifully in your memoir the illustrations playing a major role in helping readers get a peek into your state of mind. What are some factors that helped you on this journey to self-discovery? And what would you say to someone who's on a similar path?
2: I actually would just reference exactly what I was saying is what helped me in my journey was writing and drawing about the journey. And for me, so much of it was the very first draft of gender queer was a series of comics that I put on Instagram over like about a year and a half. So I would post them and then I would get You know, reactions, and then I would post more, and then people would ask me about them in my life, and then I'd have a conversation, and then I would write about that. And so, for me, the creative process was like a huge help in figuring myself out. And what I would say to other people, mainly, I would say, like, you're not alone. I get a lot of messages from people who've read my book or read my comics online saying, I didn't think anyone else in the world thought about this, or anyone else was questioning gender, confused about gender struggling with the same aspects of gender. And I usually just say, you are absolutely not alone. There are many people thinking about these issues. There's many people making work about these issues. Like if you feel these ways, you're a part of a huge community and welcome, like welcome, we'd love to have you. That's usually what I'd say to people.
0: I would like to end this episode on a positive note because queer representation in cinema, pop culture or books usually consists of a lot of traumatic recollection. But of course, like our lives are not only about pain. So would you all like to drop a recommendation of your favorite depiction of queer joy?
2: I want to shout out another podcast. It's called Gender Reveal. It's hosted by Tuck Woodstock, who is a trans journalist who lives in Portland, Oregon. And in every episode, they interview other trans and non-binary and queer people. And though there are conversations that touch on the struggle side of being queer, a lot of it is just like two people just talking about stuff that they really enjoy or things that they relate to or things they've discovered or made or done or planned. And I'm so delighted every time I listen to it. So, you know, all the episodes are available for free online. So I would recommend that.
3: I was out with my friend Jean, like I said, on, on Monday, and she gave me a copy of her new book, which is called Summer Fun. I haven't read it yet because I just got it in my hot little hands two nights ago, but she's an amazing, amazing author. I was just reading one of her short stories last night, and I was just amazed at the amount of joy she brings to every sentence. I was like, I was in awe of how she writes and how this kind of like ratio of moments of like where you kind of like are gasping because the number of sentences that pile up that are just so lovingly constructed is, is a really high emotion. And I'd also, I just reread the collection that was a, the short story that she had a collection that she had a piece in was called Meanwhile Elsewhere. And it's a collection of trans science fiction and fantasy. And it's edited by Kat Fitzpatrick and Casey Platt. It's just been reissued by Little Plus Press. So um, that's totally worth checking out and will expand your horizons greatly.
0: Thank you. Thank you for suggesting that. Um, Shaif, do you have any recommendation? I would suggest
1: that, you know, there is a, there's a very sweet film called Evening Shadow and it's been made by an Indian uh, sweetheart who happens to be a friend of mine. And it's a beautiful film. Yeah, I mean, there could be a critical lens to, you know, to the quality of the production or something, but I do understand that a lot of the money was crowdfunded, so there were limitations which the way the film was made. That would be a lovely one because it's, it is a love story, but it's also important from an Indian context, I would say, is because the role of the mother in that film and the, the tussle between the mother and the father of a gay son. That was one, there is a lovely, again, a film with, which has won many awards across the world. It's called You for Usha. It's in Marathi. It's, again, I would say watch it because its its setting is very different. It's, it's more like a village setting. And trance. It's a short film. There's another one made by another friend also who's a well known film filmmaker. She, she's made the short film called Monsoon Date. And it's with Konkana Sen, again trance. Just very sensitively put together. So, I mean, you know, Queer joy is a little difficult to figure out as to what is queer joy. I think some for some of us, even seeing our feelings out there, we feel a little happy. And there's another serial I saw. I wouldn't say it's brilliant, but I enjoyed it because I was down with COVID. And that's what I was watching every night. It is a Thai serial called Together. And it's a two-part thing. And, and it's done. It's I've heard of that well. one. I've yeah, heard of that, that one.
2: It's there's, very it's, sweet. It uh,
1: looks so cute. There's, um, there's cute. a trailer on YouTube. Yeah. And, yeah, and you know, since I visit Thailand so often, and there's been this long gap since I haven't been there, I was just relating to just so much, you know, the way they speak and and the whole, you know, case scene, which just seems so much part of life out there. So that was, an, that was one, I would say also that, you know, people should uh, try and, and try and watch. And if you want to go back in time, there's Priscilla and it's just fantastic. I recommend films more because I think there's a there's a lot of powerful work out there. And even though I'm a writer, I don't read as much as listen. So I still listen to music once the records. so yeah, so that's I can, I can recommend films more and stuff like that.